little bit ridiculous, but we'll manage. Thanks very much uh, also for the nice introduction. I accept giant of Ljubljana because it's a small city city, so <laughs> easy to be a giant there. No, I, it means nothing. Okay. Uh, I just feel bad for you. My God, go and read a book, even if it's a book on, of mine, better than standing here. But okay, free country, your choice. Uh, no, I nonetheless want to do some relatively serious things tonight. I don't want to focus on what I'm supposed to talk about, my new book, Violence, which basically comes together with the other book, the In Defense of Lost Causes, like there is a tense relationship of censorship, because I had to cut out some things from violence, I put them into the other book, and so on. But what I want to, to focus on today, it's almost the opposite of violence, is politeness. All these unwritten rules of politeness, civility, which I think play the central role of how ideology effectively functions today. Or, to put it in the terms which are in the last two, three days very actual in your electoral politics, uh, no, what's that? Doc, that you put the lipstick on of Sarah Palin's uh, bull, bull, bull something. Sorry? No. Pitbull. No pitbull without lipstick, no? Lipstick is ideology you have to put on. So, uh, your first reaction probably will be, am I crazy? Ideology. Where is ideology today? I mean, where do we live today? In what kind of society? in what kind of society. Isn't it clear that we live in some sense in a post-ideological society? Now you will say, am I crazy? Didn't I see what Republicans are saying? Our country first, sacrifice, war, whatever. No, but nonetheless, I think that these are all reactive phenomena. That our, the basic way the society addresses us today, like what society, its symbolic space, what does it expect from us? It's no longer to sacrifice yourself for some cause, to dedicate your life to a higher duty or whatever. I think basically we are addressed as enlightened, like slightly spiritualized hedonists. The order, as it were, today is be truly yourself, realize yourself, and so on and so on, all the possible variations on this. So where is here ideology? Let me give you a somewhat simplified definition of where I see ideology. Ideology is not, for me, some crazy abstract intellectual ed edifice, um, articulated worldview made to distract you from real problems, to mystify them. It's the very way we perceive real problems. Ideology is efficient because it deals with very real problems, ecology, racism, and so on. The mystification is in the way it formulates, perceives these problems. The lesson is that there are not only wrong answers to questions, there are also wrong questions in the sense that the very way we perceive a problem, which can be a very real problem, the very way we perceive a problem is effectively a part of the problem. It mystifies the problem. That would be ideology. What do I mean by this? Let me give you immediately one or two examples. Uh, tolerance. Why am I against tolerance as a slogan? Of course, this doesn't mean that I'm for intolerance. I know very well that problems like sexism, racism, and so on are very real. But let me focus, for example, on racism. The question to be raised, I think, is 
Why do we today, at least this is my impression, correct me if I am wrong, why do we today automatically, as it were, tend to translate prob problems of racism into something which concerns tolerance? As if the, the, uh, the mode of functioning of racism is that you don't tolerate the other. I don't think this is by any means self-evident. Look at Martin Luther King. Download his speech, his put search, look for words tolerance, intolerance. You, they are practically absent. You will not find them. For him, it would have been obscene to say that racism is a problem of tolerance. The same as for you, if you are, I hope you are feminists, it would have been, I hope, obscene for you to claim our feminist struggle is so that men will tolerate us more or whatever. <laughs> it's ridiculous. For Martin Luther King, racism is a problem of equality, economic exploitation, legal rights, uh, uh, racist prejudices, and so on. Anything but not intolerance. So, you see, here it comes ideology. Re serious problem, racism, I claim. The designation of tolerance, putting tolerance in, up in front as the main category to catch racist phenomena, mystifies it. Why? Because I claim it basically depoliticizes the problem. Instead of talking about economy, political power, legal power, we talk about cultural prejudices. And we end up, I'm sorry to tell you this, it will maybe shock you, because I'm some kind of psychoanalyst, you end up with psychoanalytic traumas and so on. Like, no, like, I noticed this when in South California, they deal with this resentment towards Mexican immigrants. You end up, if you are at the cultural studies department, with what, what inner traumas do you project into Mexicans so that you don't tolerate them, and so on and so on. So again, the, uh, so why do we do this? That's the true question. I claim it's precisely the sign, one of the signs of our so-called post-political era, where we less and less talk about economy, politics, political structure, and so on, and more and more about culture wars. That is to say, all phenomena, uh, the only way practically to introduce passion into politics, to get out of this uh, grey expert dialogue, dialogue, is to move into the domain of, is to move into the domain of culture wars. And that's what, what does this say? As I developed in one of my earlier books, I think the lesson is that the two guys who appear to be opposed, Francis Fukuyama and Sam, Samuel Huntington, are really two sides of the same coin. You know, Fukuyama, the end of history, that is to say, even if there is a long period of struggle, blah, blah, we have found, according to him, the formula which is, if not the best, at least the least bad of the possible world, capitalism with liberal democracy. Huntington, on the other hand, as you know, predicts the clash of civilizations, that is to say culture wars. But again, culture, culture wars are the mode of political struggles at the point of the end of history. I mean, I don't really think that we are at the end of history, but one has to be very careful here. There is something in our experience which fits this designation, the end of history, precisely this post-1990s feeling of uh, big ideological projects are over, we live finally in an era uh, which, uh, again, found at least the, the, the least worst of the possible worlds. So uh, this is where I see ideology. 
Or, let me take another topic, which we are all well aware of how serious it is. Maybe it will even decide our lives, my God. Uh, it's a very question of survival ecology. Of course, it's a very real problem. But I claim ideological mystifications, investments are all, all the more strong in ecology. Like, just think about all this <coughs> New Age mythology of Gaia, Mother Earth, that is to say, the notion of nature as some kind of a balanced, homeostatic, organic, holistic, whatever system, which then, in a typical secular theological mood, we, humans, with our hubris, disturbed the balance, raped the Mother Earth, and so on and so on, and now our duty is to repay the debt to re-establish uh, the balance. I think that this kind of uh, 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 ecology should be rejected as part of the problem, not a solution. For me, at least, the, the ABC, the first axiom of truly progressive ecology, and also of the only serious way to cope with ecological problems, is to accept that there is no nature, to cut a long story short. I don't mean by this some kind of crazy, uh, discursive, idealist, uh, uh, subjective, uh, subjectivist approach. I'm not saying there is no objectivity, everything that we perceive as reality out there is our discursive construct. No, I'm saying that nature is not what we understand by this notion, some kind of organic, self-contained, homeostatic reproduction which we disturbed. To cut a long story short, if there is a lesson to be learned from progressive Darwinists like Stephen Jay Gould and others, it's that nature doesn't exist in the sense that it's one big catastrophe, one big imbalance. Uh, let's, let, let's think, okay, we all talk about now this Palin obscenities, drilling, and so on and so on. I rather stop my associations there. But uh, that girl likes drilling, obviously, no? Uh, uh, but what I want to say is that uh, 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 oil, the problem is oil. Are we aware, just think, what kind of a mega ecological catastrophe had to happen on our earth, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands or millions of years ago, so that we got oil reserves? That's nature. Nature is not balanced reproduction. Nature is total imbalance which from time to time temporarily gets temporary, usually balanced and so on and so on. That's the beginning for me. What's the lesson of it? I tried to develop this in the last chapter of my book more in detail of, on the lost causes. The lesson is, uh, let me go a little bit further here in a study of ideology. The lesson I claim, uh, uh, the lesson is that it's not that so-called deep ecologists are too pessimist in the sense, oh, we betrayed Mother Earth and so on. No, in a way, they are too optimistic even. Why? Because they still presuppose that, how should I put it, that there is at least a measure of stability, nature, natural balance, sustainability and so on, that we have somewhere to return to, as it were. I claim situation, the situation is radically open. We don't have anywhere to return to, even. There is no standard of natural balance which we should take as the ideal. All we can do is improvise, test, and you can never be quite sure if by doing something you will not 
at a different level, unknown to you, cause even, cause even a larger uh, uh, catastrophe. This is why, as I develop in that book, Lost Causes, I like these paradoxical results, proposals of intelligent ecologists. For example, a guy in Germany recently claimed that the problem is that nature itself is already, nature itself, by this he means the reproduction, the cycle of nature on our earth, the entire earth as biosphere, is already so much accustomed to a certain degree of our pollution that it, if we change things radically, even if for the good, you never know what kind of imbalance this will call, this will call in nature. You see, you see the paradox. We have nowhere to, nowhere to return to. Another thing that I want to improvise here on about uh, ecology is that shouldn't we ask ourselves a simple question? How is it, my God, how is it that although we know very well that things are pretty serious, did you notice this strange inability, as it were, self-sabotage to act to do something? And I think it's way too, simply, too, too simple to simply refer to the old-fashioned Marxist explanation, yes, big companies are, through their propaganda, are uh, blinding us uh, so that we cannot see how serious the situation is. No, we know very well it's serious, but you see what's the result. The last meeting of great powers in Bali, I think, Indonesia, was hailed as a success. Why? Because the, the, the conclusion was that they will meet in two years again to continue the debate. Why don't we do it? Now, here another aspect of ideology. This is a little bit stronger thesis. I wonder if you would agree. My next proposal, so the first ecological proposal for me is there is no nature. The second one for me goes even further. It is, there is, it is that, uh, uh, I should put it to be very precise, uh, that, uh, I just don't want to make things more, is that the, we need more alienation from nature. It's not that we are not connected with nature. No, we should totally break with this uh, new age spiritualist approach telling us the problem is our Cartesian technological civilization, which makes us reduce nature to just an object of our technological manipulation and so on and so on. But as they put it, nature is not just out there as the object that we exploit. We are part of nature. We are breathing with nature. Nature is the very texture background of our living. We should learn to rediscover how we are, like your glorious reporters in Iraq, how we are embedded in nature. <laughs> uh, I would say exactly the opposite. That's why we don't act. Isn't it that, I mean, maybe I'm here, uh, 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 the strange guy, but I think it's pretty uh, common, this reaction. When somebody explains to you, you know, maybe this will happen, global warming, whatever, things will totally change, rationally you believe him or them. But then you step out and you see there is sun, there are trees, some stupid birds singing, whatever you want, and you take it, but wait a minute, this cannot really, this, you know, be you get my point? Precisely because we are, as it were, wired into nature, into our environment, we cannot really imagine that it can radically change. And I claim we are, we, in our everyday life, experience situation as that of what in psychoanalysis we call fetishist split. I know very well, but I still cannot, in my guts, really accept it. 
And this, so I claim again, the only solution is to alienate ourselves even more from nature in the sense of to experience how fragile, contingent our natural background is. How? We never know when we, it can disintegrate, it can fall apart, and so on and so on. We need more alienation, I think, from nature. We need to truly denaturalize ourselves. Now, this brought me already to the first thesis of ideology also, how ideology functions today. I think quite a lot of it is determined by this fetishist split. I use here a psychoanalytic terms, but I think one should be very careful about using psychoanalysis in social and ideological field. Why? I claim no wonder that many old-fashioned Marxists love psychoanalysis. Why do they love it? Because it allows them to avoid the truly tough self-critical questions. Namely, if you approach an old Marxist, he will tell you we know what's going on, American imperialism, their, their mantra is, it may appear that nothing is happening today, just wait for a couple of years when the third world will organize itself, we will have even stronger class struggle, and so on and so on. Okay, an optimistic image. So then you ask them, but nonetheless, according to Marxism, classical Marxism, certain things should have happened, revolution, why didn't they happen, if your analysis is true? Then they tell you, oh, ask Freud, you know, like, imperialists are, are using all the libidinal manipulations of propaganda, and so on and so on. That's only a way to avoid the tough question, which is, where was your analysis wrong, or where today it no longer is appropriate. But nonetheless, this notion of fetishist split in the sense of I know very well that it's a fake what I'm saying, blah, blah, but I nonetheless in a way believe in it. I claim if you want one big lesson in all this, just look at the Republican National Convention if you did look at it. I don't think they really, they somehow all know that all this thing, you know, change uh, and, or, or whatever they say, that it's bullshit. But nonetheless, at a certain point, they, they believe in it. This, how does this constellation work? Ah, here one should turn to Hollywood, maybe. I claim that Hollywood films, especially big blockbusters, are for me so interesting because effectively you often find in them our basic ideological constellation coordinates at its purest. You know, Hegel, the big German guy, <laughs> said... Uh, <laughs> somewhere a wonderful thing in his aesthetics. He said, apropos painting, that a good portrait of a person looks more like that person than that person itself looks like itself, how should I put it? In this sense, I think in Hollywood you find more our ideology than in ourselves. What do I mean by this? My God, let me just take two recent blockbusters. The Dark Knight, the last Batman film. First ideological trend, I hope I will have some time later to return to it, is, and I really hate this, it's this psychological depth. Did you know see something horrible? I mean, I'm a flat, vulgar person. I hate this, how they are telling us that in the last Batman, or it was the same Spider-Man, whatever, that, uh, you know, the hero is no longer just a flat cartoon hero. You can see his anxieties, his weakness, his traumas, and so on, as if somehow this makes it deeper or more artistic or, or whatever. No? And I think this is general, a general ideological move today. Did you notice how, I don't know, when I visited Israel, my Jewish friends 
draw my attention to this, how the whole propaganda of IDF, Israel Defense Forces today, is no longer this old arrogance of, oh, one of our battalions can take over an, uh, an Egyptian or Arab army in an afternoon, whatever. No, it's to emphasize repeatedly, we are humans, like everybody else. Like you see on Israeli TV, soldiers crying, even I saw one literally shitting out of fear, whatever. But that was their point, you know, like, as one of the officers put it, a military is not in our genetics, like, but we are normal, nice human beings like you. Look at us in our humanity. That's ideology at its purest, because it blurs the crucial political question. When I visited Israel, there was a wonderfully disgusting manipulation there, precisely when I was there. Uh, all media reported on a strange event when Israeli Defense Forces or some anti-terrorist unit broke into a house of an alleged terrorist. He was the father of the family. The supposed terrorist wasn't there, only his family was wife and children. And of course, since the soldier brutally entered the house, uh, the wife and the children awakened, a daughter ran crying to the mother, and mother, trying to calm her down, shouted her name, of course. It was something like Sarah also. Sarah, be, be, everything will be okay, and so on. And then a soldier, one of the soldiers who entered the house brutally, now, in this way, learned that his own small daughter had the same name as that Palestinian daughter. And he showed the mother the picture. You see, ah, we are human nonetheless, and so on. This is ideology at its purest. This, this you know, we are nonetheless all humans. It serves a precise function to blur the crucial question. If we are, like in that case, if we, we are all humans, my God, why are you doing what you are doing to me at this point, and so on. I mean, this, uh, this reference to the wealth of inner life, which doesn't make us only ideological categories, is ideology, which is why, to give you a funny vulgar story, when, not this publisher, Picador, another one asked me to do this disgusting thing, I hate it, this is for me, you know, at the back cover of the books, Usually you have a couple of lines on your work, Professor blah blah deals with Hegel and so on, and then you are supposed sometimes to add a line or two on your, you know, to give a human touch on your private line, life, you know, like in free time, Professor likes to sail and grow, grow tulips or whatever. <laughs> they asked me to do this. I, of course, don't be afraid. I'm not doing this, but just to provoke them, to show them. I told them, okay, fine, put it. In his free time, Professor Zizek serves the internet for pedophilia and teaches, <laughs> and teaches his small son how to pull legs of living spiders and so on. <laughs> it's a fake. That's what I wanted to tell them. It's a fake. It's a fake. Precisely this human touch is a fake. Like, the last, I had really to laugh, lesson of how this function was I learned recently that the guy who will even die now, I learned he wasn't at the parade, Kim Jong-il, the leader of North Korea, opened up recently, a couple of months ago, the first golf course in North Korea. Open, of course, only for foreigners to earn foreign currency. So uh, the leader, Kim Jong-il, was the first one to test it, of course. So it's an 18 holes, one eight, 18 holes golf course. You know how many hits he needed? to fill in, to finish all 18, not 18, 19. And I can imagine how first probably they wanted to put it 18, he's a genius, 
But then somebody probably said, no, this wouldn't be realistic. Let's add one so that it could be more... This is, this is the problem. So, uh, back to how it functions. That is one. The other, much more ominous aspect of the Dark Knight, here it's really an echo of our worries, predicaments, is... Did you notice that in its final denouement, the movie, okay, some of my friends who like the movie try to read it that it's an implicit critique. I have my doubts. At least the story of the movie, of what I will now describe, basically condones lying as a necessary ingredient of social stability. You remember what happens at the end. The policeman who was supposed to be a good guy is discovered to be the murderer. Then the judgment is if this will be known to the public, it will undermine the trust, the confidence and so on. So heroically Batman takes upon himself uh, the crimes. This is, this is very logic which I, I would have been very afraid of. If somebody, this logic of this is the old authoritarian motive of how in order to have social stability you need a lie. How the highest service to do to society is not to tell the truth but to lie for the common good and so on and so on and so on. That's the message. Okay. Another film where you have recent relative blockbuster, I saw it four or five times, but because of my son who likes it, which is ideology at its purest, at the same level is Kung Fu Panda. You thought the cartoons were... Why? You will say, but what has this film to do about ideology? Did you notice how the film combines, mixes two opposed attitudes? On the one hand, the utter that all this sacredness of, you know, fate, the new Kung Fu master, all this oriental mystique, as it were, it combines this with our Western sarcasm. You notice how all the time they are making fun and so on of it. But I claim these two attitudes are not contradictory. They perfectly supplement each other. The, uh, here is the K formula of the film where they discover that to become a Kung Fu master, but also, as for the hero's father, to cook that perfect soup, there is no special ingredient. Here is a quote. There is no special ingredient. It's only you. To make something special, you just have to believe it's special. That's where we are today. You can be sarcastic. You can be, uh, you can be sarcastic as you want. You can make fun of everything. But nonetheless, it's a call to totally irrational belief. That is to say, have all your doubts, be cynical, you don't have to really believe, you just have to, as it were, act as if you believe. I will now repeat from my parallax view, a short anecdote which I really like, so sorry for repeating it if some of you know it, about Niels Bohr, the Copenhagen guy, you know, who visited, uh, once he was visited at his country house in, in uh, Denmark by a friend scientist, and the friend was surprised to see above the entrance door to this country house a horseshoe. You know, I don't know if it's here, but in Europe, horseshoe above the entrance door is a superstitious item. Uh, signal, the idea is that it prevents evil spirits to enter the house. So the friend asked Niels Bohr, but wait a minute, you are scientists, do you believe in this superstition? Niels Bohr said, of course not. Then the friend asked him, but why do you have it here? Niels Bohr answered a wonderful, precise answer. I don't believe in it, but I have it here above my door because I was told that it works, preventing spirits enter, that it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> that's, 
This is our ideology today. Nobody believes, if you say democracy, oh, it's corrupted, who cares, blah, blah, blah. But we, we have it up there, as they put it, no? We act as if we believe in it. And this was the first one, I think, to formulate this formula, was Golda Meir, the ancient uh, prime minister of Israel. It's a wonderful formula. When asked, do you believe in God? Here is her answer. I believe in Jewish people, and they believe in God. So I don't believe I... And I think that uh, uh, we should read this formula in a very precise way. It's not a totalitarian formula. It's not the same as the Stalinist formula where you say, okay, I only allow all these illusory celebrations to go on, not to disappoint the ordinary people who need a great leader like Stalin, whatever. No, the point is that... Uh, you even do not need another actual subject who really believes. The whole system of belief functions if just every agent, every individual presupposes that there is another one who believes, even if this other one doesn't exist at all. It's the same as we do it with Santa Claus, no? If you ask parents, they will tell you, I'm not crazy, of course there is no Santa Claus, I buy the presents, but I pretend to take it seriously so that my children will not be disappointed. They believe. Then if you ask privately the children, of course they will tell you, I'm not an idiot, but I pretend, I don't know, not to disappoint parents, to get <laughs> presents. You know what I mean? Uh, nobody believes. But it's enough that everyone presupposes that another one believes and the whole system of belief uh, functions. Uh, now let me, and this will be then the end of repetitions, but I will give another twist to this uh, old story that I know I repeated, I repeated it five times in my books. Everybody knows it. I want to repeat it because, again, I will give a different reading to it. Uh, to get at this logic... Let me tell you a joke again, which you all know, you know, the old one about a man who thought he was a grain, you know, returning to mental hospital saying, I'm afraid I will be eaten by a chicken. And then the psychiatrist asked him, but wait a minute, we cured you. You know, you are not a piece of a seed of grain. You are a human. He says, so a chicken cannot eat you. The guy answers, yes, I know it, but does the chicken know it that I am no longer? <laughs> This is, it's a very realistic joke. This is how our ideology functions. We, we know very well that we are not a piece of grain or whatever, but our problem is, as it were, does the chicken know it? That's also, if I may make another reference to cinema, what I find fundamentally wrong about a film which many people like, but I'm totally opposed to it, about the Holocaust, the Holocaust comedy, La Vita e Bella, Life is Beautiful, Benigni. Uh, first, we have to accept a very traumatic fact, it, there is a lot to learn from it, that why are almost all really good feelings about Holocaust comedies? No, no, I'm not here trying to provoke you, to be open, I'm not making fun of it, I'm not crazy. I mean, I sold this thesis, I'm proud to tell you, at a conference in Jerusalem, and my God, some old ladies with all those two numbers came to me and uh, totally agreed with me that uh, to have a, a tragedy a tragedy a tragic situation still presupposes that the victim has the victim retains a minimum of dignity to play the tragic role when things go really bad 
you no longer have a tragedy. You have something which can paradoxically be rendered only as a comedy. In other words, to claim that the fate of the Jews and other prisoners in Auschwitz and so on was tragic, you concede to the Nazis too much. You underestimate the radical humiliation. So that's okay with the film. My problem is the end when you are supposed to stop laughing and cry. You know, last five minutes when the father sacrifices himself for the son and so on. I can imagine a different ending which would have been much more uneasy, I claim. I hope you know the film, no, the story that father and son Jews are put into a concentration camp from Italy and in order to enable his son to survive the camp without being too traumatized, father tells him a fiction that uh, in reality this is just a big competition game who will, who will endure life in this camp without breaking down, that if they want they can leave at any moment, it's just one big game. Okay, I claim, and that's the premise of the film, wouldn't it be much more uncanny if father, the father were to discover at the end that the small kid knew all the time that the father is lying to him, but just pretended to believe to make it easier for father. That would have been a truly desperate situation, I think. Okay, so again, in La Vita e Bella, he is the chicken, the son. We can be brutal, ruthless, the chicken doesn't know. There has to be a chicken, that's I think the premise of liberal permissivity. We can do whatever, sexual orgies with, with cows, whatever, I don't know what you do here, <laughs> but there must be a chicken who doesn't know. Usually these chicken are children. Did you notice how in today's era where we proclaim, oh, permissivity, Freud is outdated, we are no longer live in a Victorian era, nonetheless, the central insight of Freud, that into children, sexuality, is again, it disappeared, it's a taboo. That is to say, did you notice how, and again, I have no sympathy for pedophiles, but nonetheless, I find it interesting as an ideological phenomenon how in the last 20 or so years, uh, the child molesting was elevated into the ultimate figure of a crime. I think, again, it's as if we can play our dirty games, adults, but children's innocence has to be protected. And we find this logic of protect the innocence of a children, that is to say, there is an agency whose appearance has to be protected. This is where ideological mechanisms start to function. Let me tell you a totally crazy story. I know a country which fell apart because a chicken wasn't allowed to know. It's my own ex-country, Yugoslavia. What do you mean by this? Now that old communist uh, 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 nomenclatura guys are publishing their memoirs, we learned something very strange that already in the early 70s it was clear to the circle around the old big legendary whatever President Tito that the economic situation is horrible and that at some point it will be necessary to do what we euphemistically today call necessary structural readjustments, no? like uh, you know what this means. But they decided Tito is old and it will make his last years very unhappy to see the economic crisis. So they decided to postpone the outbreak of the crisis till Tito dies. So throughout the 70s, the state of Yugoslavia was 
acquiring new debts like crazy just to sustain this artificial half-welfare. 1980, Tito died, the economic crisis was allowed to explode. The result was, uh, of course, uh, uh, um, explosion of nationalism, which incidentally, that's another ideological trap. Please, it's even worse than Elvis of cultural theory or whatever. This story of, yes, Balkan, primitive part of Europe where they still, uh, they're still uh, uh, living in their medieval dreams. If you want to understand the Yugoslav war, you have to know the last 500 years of history and so on and so on. I think absolutely not. That was the trap of the West pure ideology. You were fetishizing Balkans into some exotic place, sustained by filmmakers whom I don't like who played this game, like the most famous Yugoslav, Emir Kusturica, his underground. Ideology at its purest. The West got there what it wanted. The image of ex-Yugoslavia as a country where people drink, fight, copulate all the time, a permanent orgy, and so on. So what I wanted to say is that uh, 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 if you want to account for the disintegration of Yugoslavia, forget about this old nationalist myth. The problem was a very simple one, I claim. Communist nomenclatura in each republic had to find a way how to retain its legitimacy. And the only way was by making a pact with nationalists. But let me go back. So here, again, one can say that, in a way, one of the crucial elements in the conditions for the country falling apart was that for eight year, last eight years of his life, the chicken President Tito wasn't allowed to know. And this logic can get very mysterious. It is at the level of this mysterious excesses that you get ideology at its purest. For example, uh, there is, uh, since we are close to, okay, we're not as north as Washington and Alaska, but close to that era, to that area, let me tell you a weird story which I found wonderful. What happened in Soviet Union in 53? Okay, Stalin died, and then in the summer of 53, the first volume of the new Soviet encyclopedia, covering letters from A to C appeared. A to C. Uh, there was a problem. In it, there were two pages, almost, on Beria, Lavrenti Beria. You know, he was Stalin's uh, boss of KGB, but immediately after Stalin's death, he was arrested by Khrushchev and his gang and shot as a traitor, English spy, and so on and so on. So, for the Stalinist universe, there was a problem here. Like, you know, in Stalinism, when you are off, you are a non-person. So what to do? What was the solution of the editors? It was a big a, a, a big printing, it was like three, four million copies, encyclopedia. Every subscriber got a letter from the editor with a new page, and he was ordered to cut off the old page leaf with entry on Beria and put in the new one. And they perfectly uh, restored the continuity. On the new page, the previous, previous entry went on, then it was this page to the end, the beginning of next page, on. Ah, here is the genius. You know what did they replace Beria with? Here I come to Alaska, Bering Strait, the same B-E-R, with some photos and so on. So now ask yourself a naive question. Why this worry to erase all the traces of Beria to restore perfect continuity? Who was duped here? Not the ordinary people. They had to do it, my God. It is as if... 
there is what in Lacanian theory we call the big other, some anonymous agency, the chicken, whose innocence had to be protected. The chicken shouldn't know that once there was barrier. For the chicken barrier shouldn't exist. Now you'll say, haha, yes, this comes from primitive Slavic communists. Does it hold for us? It does. Hollywood. Hitchcock's vertigo. Incredible detail which follows the same logic. You know vertigo, maybe even better than me, the movie. Do you know how around one hour, even a little bit less, into the movie, after Scotty saves Madeleine for, from her, as we learn afterwards, fake suicide, jump into the Golden Gate, uh, into the Golden Gate, uh, 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 into the water beneath the Golden Gate, he takes her home and puts her, undresses her, puts her into the bed. So we have a long panning shot, First we see in his living room Scotty behind his table, then the camera moves slowly towards the left. We see the kitchen sink, above it the underwear drying there of Madeleine, a signal. What did he do? That he undressed her, dried her up and put her into bed and then the movement further left to the door of the bedroom. We get in one long shot the whole situation. There is only one problem. If you don't believe me, do it. Check it. Put your DVD on, freeze it on steel when the camera is above the kitchen sink. And you will see that what you see is not underwear, but just abstract pieces of cloth. And I read in a French book on vertigo, very good one, I forgot, I don't know, the, the, the guy is called Esterhazy, but it's, again, not yet translated, but it's a wonderful book. Uh, uh, why was this the case? This was still, the he, uh, vertigo was caught in 57, still Hayes coat, and the censorship insisted that there should be no underwear effectively there drying up. Because if it's really underwear, this would have been a proof that Scotty saw her naked. But this is Hollywood, it shouldn't happen. Uh, why is this so mysterious? Because, just ask yourself a naive question. Whom was, were the censor protecting? Not us, the public. Because we automatically assume that we see underwear there. It was not our, we were not the chicken here. The chicken was again this anonymous big other. Like, it's as if, imagine yourself being questioned by some censor. Oh, what dirty, and you can say, no, 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 nothing happened. It, 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 just pieces of cloth, there was no underwear, and so on and so on. This is what I'm getting at. This is what fascinates me so much. This double level, this is the basic split of how ideology functions. Always bear this in mind. How you have the explicit message which maintains the appearances and sustaining it all the dirty obscenity and so on. Which is why, I will be very brief here, I'm sorry, but I want to improvise on another point which is part of my book on David Lynch, published as it were upstreet here in Seattle some years ago, so I hope you don't know it, where you have this mechanism at its absolutely purest. You know, I hope, the greatest film of all times, Casablanca. You know the famous scene two-thirds into the film when during the night uh, Ingrid Bergman comes to Humphrey Bogart, Rick, to get those famous visas, whatever, and then what happens is that they had a conversation with all this noir ridicule dialogue, you know, like she's, she wants to shoot him, he says, go on, you will be doing me a favor, and so on, all that Marvel. Then they embrace, kiss, embrace, fade out, 
two or three seconds in the half, for two, three seconds, and uh, you see uh, the tower of the Casablanca airport with the lights turning around, then back to them, continuing the same conversation. Now, every normal person asks here a question, did they do it or not? That is to say, are these three seconds just a metaphoric condensed substitute for the sexual act, or is just real time goes on? Now, the mystery is, as in a, the British uh, cinema historian Richard Maltby, in a wonderful analysis of this scene, demonstrated, the problem is that, not, it, that the film Casablanca is not here so much ambiguous as consciously contradictory. It gives you simultaneously the opposite signals. On the one hand, you get a series of signals telling you they did it. For example, uh, after a couple embraces in Hays Code Standard Hollywood, and, uh, and then you have a fade out, it's a way to hint they did it. Furthermore, after we return to them, they are smoking cigarettes. You know, this is, you know, this is basic Hollywood rule, like what is the second and third best thing in the world? The drink before and the cigarette after. So, uh, like, these are all codified signs to indicate the sexual act. But at the same time, there is a whole series of signs indicating the contrary. Like, A, they are dressed, there is no bed disturbed in the background, the same conversation seems to go on, and so on, and so on. I think it's crucial to see how these functions, these two levels, both levels are necessary. It's not that we have the official Hollywood, Puritan, and then there is some kind of subversion in all these obscene hints. No, everything is codified. The Hollywood ideology is both at the same time. Hollywood tricks you by telling you, okay, I will give you a front so that you will be able, in fa face of some imagined moral authority of censorship, to pretend, but nothing happens, nothing dirty happens. At the same time, I will give you a whole series of precisely, holy, precisely codified signals of what you can then imagine with your dirty mind, what happened, and so on and so on. And there is a whole series of procedures, I don't want to understand. All I want to tell you is that to understand how an ideological edifice functions, you have to take into account the explicit level and what, how should I put it, what, uh, what comes by it, all this implicit, obscene underground. There is nothing subversive in it. This is why, if you read some of my work, you know why I'm so fascinated with, with military life. When I went 30 years ago to serve the infamous Yugoslav army, I went with pleasure. I'm privately a kind of a leftist fascist, disciplinarian, I like order, and I, I, I was terribly disappointed. It was a big chaos full of sexual obscenities and so on and so on. That's the truth of the army life. From what I learned, it's the same with your army. It's all the discipline stuff and so on, but then you have fragging, you have all these rituals, you have all these obscenities. For example, this is why they always fascinated me, these so-called marching chants. The songs, okay, all I know is from Hollywood films, that the Marines sing when, you know, this weird obscene mixture of nonsense rhymes and sexual obscenities. Like I remember in A Few Good Men, they sing, sorry for the obscenity, something like, I don't know, but I was told that Eskimo pussies are rather cold. Like this total meaningless of, you know what's my message? This is not kind of a, a 
resistance towards the official ideology. No, this is a necessary constituent of, for the functioning of the edifice of power. Power is power and its own obscene double, as it were. And at this level, ideology functions. At level of, it's not simply what you see and what you don't see as Michel Foucault sometimes in an all too simple way describes mecha discursive mechanisms that they tell you what you see, what you don't see, how can you argue and so on. No, it's what you see and what you don't see, but at the same time what you have to pretend not to see, but you have to see it without admitting then you see it and so on and so on. Where did I encounter this? For example, uh, recently, a couple of months ago, I was at Harvard giving a talk there. Afterwards we had a dinner, I hate this, official dinners where uh, uh, ten people, we didn't even know well each other, so the presiding guy, older professor, told each of us to present him or herself. He told us each should say his name and affiliation, the field of his work, and sexual orientation. <laughs> now, I found it like, my idea was almost to tell him, but I didn't want to disturb the hospitality, that but wouldn't it be much nicer and intimate and unpleasant to ask for that each one should say how much you earn per year and how much wealth you possess privately besides that. That would have been much more But what I want to say is that, okay, in Harvard this was considered normal, non-intrusive. But I'm now not playing the usual boring European game of you vulgar Americans against us. No, I had a similar but opposite adventure with a friend of mine who visited me two years ago in summer in Slovenia. Uh, we went to Adriatic coast and to swim, it was summer, and uh, my friend was shocked when he saw practically all women on the beach uh, with breasts naked, without bras. In, I mean, it, in, in our country, in, I think even in Italy, in Germany, all the time, it's considered totally normal now. It's simply, nobody even notices it. But for him, it was pretty traumatic. He felt uneasy all the time as it, he was. You see, this is, I think, ideology at its everyday level. This rules which are not so much explicit rules as this implicit, as it were, implicit spontaneous substance which makes you uneasy when you see something and so on and so on. Uh, and so I think that the perfect, what I was tempted to ask somehow, but this wasn't the question, the best reaction to this kind of intrusive questions was provided by Gore Vidal, your great writer. You know what he said when in a TV interview he was asked, he is, as you probably know, a well-known uh, bisexual. Was your first sexual experience with a man or with a woman? His reply was, I was too polite to ask. I think this was a perfect, nothing conservative about it. I think that today, today the right-wingers are, are impolite, vulgar. I'm more and more convinced that the left radicals should take over the cause of civility and so on and politeness. Uh, so, Again, what interests me here is in what way things are very complex here. Did you notice how in both these cases, where I had to state but I didn't my sexual orientation and in the case of my friend shocked by seeing bare breasts, seeing bare breasts, the openness was basically a form of discretion, of withdrawal, in the sense of the message of 
For example, young women there showing their breasts was not, oh, here I am, I'm available, grab me. It was, no, I don't care about you, I don't see you. Like, it was to, paradoxically, it meant to signal even greater discretion. And I think in a more refined way, the same goes for uh, being asked about sexual orientation. It is, if anything, meant to desexualize possible tensions of the situation. The extreme of this attitude, which is why I think it's an ideological genre at its purest, the extreme of this attitude, I think, is hardcore pornography. Did you notice a strange form of censorship, at least in traditional hardcore pornography? If it's a full feature filler, of course, you cannot just show on and on erotic plays or copulation, you have to have some kind of a story. But did you notice how utterly embarrassingly stupid the story is? I don't think they can be as stupid as that. I think it's a necessity, a message in it. Like I even remember now I'm traumatized when I was young, I saw one, you know, the standard story, housewife is alone at home, uh, a plumber comes, fixes a hole in the bathroom, then the wife said, I have another hole to fix, can you maybe? <laughs> you are embarrassed. But where is the censorship here? I think the message is, okay, you can see it all, at the level of penetration and so on, but there must be no, how do you call it traditionally, emotional engagement. The story must be ridiculous. What is censored is to have both at the same time. That is to say, an engaging pathetic, where you feel empathy, narrative, with seeing it all. Which is why Catherine Briat in France and some others in Europe now, who try to do precisely this, making films which at the same time show sexual act in all the details and try to make a convincing, uh, pathetic and so on story, uh, do not really catch on in the public. Now you will tell me what I'm usually told, but where do I live? This kind of hardcore obviously will tell me I must be old. This was going on like 30 years ago. Where are we now? Oh, I asked this question, my friends, and they told me that now the predominant form of hardcore, or at least the typical one, is so-called gonzo. Gonzo, I think, the way I understand it, is even worse. You know what's the rule of gonzo? That there even isn't a story. That is to say, uh, gonzo means that uh, like the actors and the cameraman or director directly interact, like actors look into the camera, make funny remarks, oh, do I look well enough, cameraman tell them, move a little bit, and so on. This is for me the utmost censorship. They are terribly afraid that you, they are kind of ultra Brechtians, terribly afraid that you would be caught in identification, in the illusion. They had to, they had to sabotage this uh, uh, all the time. So again, these rules are, these rules of what you see, what you don't see, what you see, this is what I want to emphasize, what you of course, see, you are even supposed to see it, but you have to pretend, act as if you don't see it, and so on. This is ideology at its purest. This is where civility enters. Uh, because what is civility or politeness? It's something pretty mysterious. It's neither goodness, generosity, kindness, it's, generosity and kindness are less obligatory. You are somehow obliged to be polite, to behave in a civilized way. But you are not in any way obliged to be kind and generous. 
On the other hand, civility politeness is less than legal or direct explicit social obligation. Nobody can force you to be polite, to behave in a civilized way. And this is crucial, I think. Here I have a problem with so-called political correctness. What it does is that it directly penalizes something like talking in a brutal, harassing way, which should be a matter of politeness and civility. I think that the result is necessarily catastrophic. But what I want to tell you is that this is the lesson again to learn, that we should be aware in what way to live in a free individualist society, which is more or less ours, how many, how, what a complex cobweb texture of implicit rules has to be there so that we can interact with each other with, uh, as free individuals. Many rules have to be here so that we can be free, as it were. And this, I think, enables us to throw a new light on this so famous phenomenon of ethnic or religious fundamentalism. There is a pretty stupid sociological cliché which claims that fundamentalism means that people today are afraid of too many freedoms. The idea is we live in a society where you do whatever you want, uh, you, you can choose even your sexual orientation, your ethnic belonging, like too much freedom. You have to choose to recreate yourself all the time. So the idea is people are afraid of this excess overburden of freedom and they escape into some old set of traditional firm values to give meaning and stability to their lives. I would say yes and no. This is the less important part of the story. What is more important is the exact opposite. What do I mean by this? I got a lesson of a lifetime when some more than 10 years ago I visited briefly Belgrade and by chance in some local restaurant got in contact with some really hard nationalist guys, ethnic cleansers probably and so on. And uh, I got really a lesson of a lifetime from them. Namely, they told me openly that why are they what they are? They told me, no, it's not who they escape freedom, they want old values. No, they told me on the contrary. Modern life was for them all too well regulated with all its politically correct and so on rules. As one of them brutally told me, my God, if you want to live in a free Western society, if I want where to live there, I cannot even beat my wife. I cannot rape a nice girl if I see her. I cannot beat a friend. I cannot swear. I cannot whatever. For them, liberal society was all too regulated and stifling. And for them, recognizing yourself, identifying yourself as a nationalist, fundamentalist, meant a new freedom. I'm a nationalist, which means on behalf of my nation, I can do whatever you want. Let's go to Bosnia, let's kill, let's rape, let's rob, and so on and so on. This is a crucial element of so-called totalitarian appeal, as it was already very clear to Adorno, the good old Frankfurt guy, who already in the late 30s, he wrote a wonderful short text on the psychological structure of fascist propaganda, where he emphasizes how Hitler was not a figure of paternal authority. Wilhelm Reich was totally wrong here. The message of Hitler was not, I'm now a good father. You were too wild, my children, in Weimar, Germany, with moral decadence, social chaos. Now I want from you order, sacrifice for Germany, discipline. That's the public discourse. But it was always supplemented by this implicit obscenity. Join me, 
Play my game, end. We can have fun killing the Jews, beating... The Nazi discourse promised you all this obscenity. And, and what? And now I will read you a song. Sorry, a song, a poem, which I translated into English. Please listen to it. It's a nice, short poem. Convert to my new faith, O crowd. I offer you what no one has had before. I offer you inclemency and wine. The one who won't have bread will be fed by the light of my son. People, nothing is forbidden in my faith. There is loving and drinking and looking at the sun for as long as you want. And this Godhead forbids you nothing. Oh, obey my call, brothers, people, crowd. You know who wrote this poem? Radovan Karadzic, the guy who is now in Hague. And I think he, he knows what he was doing. Did you notice this moment of radical permissivity? Nothing is forbidden in my faith. Godhead forbids you nothing, and so on and so on. He was well aware what he was doing. A proof is that this is how it functions it here. I want to quote you a passage in which Alexander Tianic, a leading Serb columnist, described how the Milosevic regime functions when in Serbia Milosevic, the radical nationalist, was in power. Quote, Milosevic generally switched the Serbs. In the time of his rule, Serbs abolished the time for working. No one does anything. He, Milosevic, allowed the flourishing of the black market and smuggling. You can appear on the state TV and insult Blair, Clinton, or anyone else of the world dignitaries. My, my brief remark here, this was literally true. I remember when NATO was bombing ex-Yugoslavia, Serbia, there was a talk show on Serb TV where behind the person's talking was a big poster, a reference to Monica Levinsky and Clinton, you know, this was just after the Levinsky affair, the words were, poor Bill Clinton, did Monica also suck out all of your brain or something like that? That was state TV. Okay, I go on. Furthermore, Milosevic gave us the right to carry weapons. He gave us the right to solve all our problems with weapons. He gave us also the right to drive stolen cars. Milosevic changed the daily life of Serbs into one great holiday and enabled us all to feel like high school pupils on a graduation trip, which means that nothing, but really nothing, of what you can do can be punishable. End of quote. You, you see now my point. That's the attraction, the reality of so-called religious and so on fundamentalism. The best metaphor for this is, uh, is uh, a film, so I'm slowly approaching the conclusion, which means I'm not even one half into the text, but that's life, no? Okay. Uh, uh, I want to uh, begin to conclude, put it ambiguously, with a reference to a good old Hollywood leftist film. John Carpenter, yes, the very guy who did Halloween. John Carpenter's, I hope you know it, although it's difficult to get, I think, now on DVD. They Live, from 1988, yeah. yeah. You remember that wonderful, it deserves a close analysis. It's not as naive and primitive as it appears. That uh, uh, wonderful idea of, you know, it's a story of uh, John Nada, wonderful reference to proletarian position. Nada, you know, is Spanish for nothing. Uh, a homeless guy who finds in an abandoned church some box with strange sunglasses, puts the glasses on, and discovers that these glasses are kind of 
ideological critical sunglasses. Like, <laughs> you have them on, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I am afraid that I would be afraid to ask you what do you see. Like, when you see me, you see some pseudo-leftist stuff, you put the glasses on, this guy is paid by those in power to amuse you and keep you from serious engagement. I prefer not to ask, okay, but you got the point. The idea is when you put these glasses on, you see the true as it were, the true ideological message. Like, there is a big poster for visit Hawaii, have a holiday of your lifetime. You put the glasses on, it say, marriage, enjoy, reproduce, don't think, or something like that. You see the truth. Uh, now, this may appear naive. Of course, there is a naivety, because we all know we don't need all the paranoia about aliens taking over. I mean, this excess that you see here through the glasses is inscribed into the very form of the message. No need for paranoia. But nonetheless, there is something very true in how the film stages this scene. Why? Did you notice, if you saw the film, uh, one strange fact? One would have expected exactly the opposite. That is to say that we live the lie insofar as we look at the world with false glasses, that ideology are like mystifying glasses. And to go to this new age, be true to yourself uh, uh, metaphoric, isn't then the truth to, isn't, wouldn't, shouldn't it have been the opposite that? To see the truth, you should become aware that you are wearing mystifying glasses. And you should put glasses off to see with your own eyes the way things really are. No, the film emphasizes its opposite, getting Free, liberating yourself, is a very violent process. Okay, but another thing I want to say, that it's crucial to, nonetheless, to combine this kind of split between implicit and explicit message, where, again, the explicit message is the hedonist one. Enjoy, have a good time. The true implicit message is the true ideological order. Don't think, marry, buy, consummate, whatever. But isn't it that more often, or at least in traditional ideology as a rule, we have the opposite procedure, where what you directly see is the explicit message. And what you were to see, if you would have put the glasses on, would have been this obscene supplement. For example, I don't know, let's return to Nazi Germany. The explicit message is, enough of decadence, sacrifice yourself, do your duty, Germany needs you. You put the glasses on, what you see is, and we'll have fun, we'll beat the Jews, we'll have our orgies, whatever. Or, go to South American, sorry, your own South, South of the United States in the 20s, 30s, a small town, with Ku Klux Klan and so on. The explicit message, Christian values, family, defense of our civilization, you put the glasses on, okay, and then at the weekend we gather, we rape some black girls, we lynch some blacks, and so on and so on. So, the obscene supplement is invisible. Both this logic of, how to put it, uh, two levels, implicit, explicit, are, I claim, today more crucial than ever. Let me just give you another example, which we encounter all the time today. The one of charity. You know, like, my God, you cannot even open a newspaper or TV without seeing some starving African 
teeth uh, or with some lip deformation and then the usual message. Uh, for the price of one or two of your cappuccinos, you can change the life of, and so on and so on. Very nice, but again, what if I were to put your glasses on? No? <laughs> what, what would I have seen? I claim something like, don't think, don't politicize, forget about the true causes of their poverty, just act, contribute money so that you will not have to think. I think this constant appeals to charity work as a kind of a almost token of superstition, like do a small act so that you get rid of the problem so that you can go on. And I think the crucial message here is also the one, if you ask me, of depoliticization. Depoliticization in the sense of, uh, I remember when I was young, the motto of the left was still this motive of while we live in our relatively affluent uh, upper middle class so society, are we aware that out there there are people who are starving, dying, and so on? Did you notice how in the last years the establishment took these metaphorics over? Today it's Bill Gates who, talk like, who talks like this, reminding us all the time, oh, there are people out there in Africa, India, and so on. Why are they doing it? I think the underlying message is the one of depoliticization and moralization. It's, so let's stop our ideological debates. People are starving there. Who cares about socialism, capitalism, and so on? Let's just come get together and do something. I think it's precisely the image of suffering is used to manipulate us in this way. It has also something to do... You are the master. Do I get five minutes more? Not more. Three. Okay, okay. Okay. Uh, no, I want to say how... Uh, this, okay, I want to do just two things. First, to explain how this shift is part of a more global change in capitalism today. How is commodification working? Grosso modo, vaguely, there are three levels of how we are addressed when we are called to buy and uh, consume a product. The most elementary is a direct reference to utility. No, like, buy Land Rover because you need it if you want to go to the countryside, because it's a good car, strong enough, stable, doesn't use too many, whatever, all the qualities. Next strategy is more consumerist, is that of competition, keeping up with the Jonas's status symbol, like, buy it so that you will appear to others as what you want to be. But I think... Both of us are today slowly receding, and more and more, the predominant motive is that of almost spiritual self-realization. Today they will tell you, you want to realize your potential, to feel authentic, to be alienated from big city, to breathe the fresh air. So by Land Rover you will be what you really are. You know, it's as if the point is your inner experience, and so on and so on. This, I, I claim, is also, let me give you an evil example, how de facto I claim all that organic food shit fu functions. I, do you really believe that if you buy those rotten apples which cost twice? Okay, maybe there is, they are a little bit less poison, but I don't really think. I claim the reason you really buy it, it's not because you really believe in purely pure scientific facts, even not for keeping up with the Jonases. Who cares? It's not a big 
status symbol. It's, you know, to make you feel good, like, you know, world is in a crisis, isn't it nice, I'm doing something, I'm participating in a larger, meaningful project, and so on and so on. This is what we should be looking at all the time. Now, really to conclude, what I wanted to conclude with is to develop how this game of two levels, implicit, explicit rules, how these implicit rules, of which we are not even aware, how all this is changing today. And I wanted to take different examples, but I will probably stop now, like global warming. Did you, did you note how uh, the, the way we talk about, or at least the way the big media talk about global warming changed, I think, around a year ago? Up to a year or two ago, the large media reaction was, let's not exaggerate, maybe it's a serious problem, but those who see catastrophe, those who accept global warming as a fact, are some kind of a post-secular, like secularized version of fanatics, old communists who need a new catastrophe now, it's okay. All of a sudden now, more and more in the media, the message is, yes, it's a fact, but what's the fuss? It has good and bad things, there are new opportunities, like CNN recently announced a new series, typical manipulation, the greening of Greenland, when they say, how wonderful, they already grow vegetables on Greenland, new opportunities if the uh, ice melts on the Arctic. Uh, uh, ships will be able to bring us the Chinese Gulag uh, chip uh, stuff directly across. It will cost less. In this way, we will burn less fuels and so on. It, uh, what worries me is how something which till now was, how should I put it, was uh, unacceptable for us, morally unacceptable, I mean like, or impossible, we couldn't imagine it, is all of a sudden normalized. This process is where you should be attentive, where ideology works. For example, not only ecology, but what about torture, Guantanamo? Now, let me be serious here. I mean, I'm not a naive anti-American fanatic. I even think that a certain way of America bashing is to play a capitalist game in a very dangerous way, but that's another story. Uh, what I want to say is that uh, what worries me is precisely the simple fact that we talk publicly about this. I mean, I know very well, I'm the first to admit when, when pro-American friends tell me, wait a minute, but let's be frank, in the United States we at least debate torture. In China, in Russia, they're probably doing it much more, but <laughs> you don't even talk about it. Okay, but we debate it. This worries me. Why? Let me draw a parallel. Rape. Would you like to live in a society where you would have to debate and argue all the time that women shouldn't be raped? No, I would like to live in a dogmatic society where when somebody starts to advocate fem uh, the right of men to rape women, you simply disqualify yourself. I mean, people don't even attack you. You're just a jerk. And like, ha ha, what's wrong with this guy or whatever? And unfortunately, I would like to live in the same so society where the same goes for torture. I think the sad sign is that we debate about, and there are many other signs that this unwritten between the lines Rules are changing. That's why I think we effectively are in the middle of change. It's not maybe the change Obama wants. It's a much more ominous change. It's the change of this very ideological background. And this is why, if you want to get what the message is, how these changes are operating, you should, I think, just 
all the time apply this mechanism of, okay, they are saying this, but what is the implicit message? They say, I believe this. What do they really want us to believe? And I think things are clear. For example, when Republicans are saying, not Obama, we are for change, we are the true candidates for change. It's a little bit, I'm afraid, uh, too short to claim, oh, but they don't really mean change. Of course they don't. I don't think that they even, the, the real message is, we promise you to change something, to change that, what is necessary to change so the things will really remain the same. I mean, that's the message between the lines. So I think it's all too naive. I mean, it's clear, you know, when they are asked about economic, uh, they say what? The good old mantra. They say less state, less state spending, less taxes, strong foreign policy, absolutely nothing new. So it's change so that nothing really changes. Another thing, when people claim uh, about how uh, all this populist rhetoric of, you know, we Mavericks, simple people, of course, Republicans are now playing the populist game. But what are the true contours of this game? Again, I don't think their real message, which is well understood by their voters, is things are really that simple. We just will put into practice in Washington your populist fury, you feel screwed up, gasoline, and no, the message is we and you know very well that we need boys in the back room experts to do the job. Let's play a game here, we will have the boys who will do the dirty job for you and it's better for you not to know it. I think that effectively between the lines they are often offering you exactly the opposite. Which is why, again, it's too short to, trying to catch him at this inconsistency. They are, at a certain level of implicit argumentation, consciously inconsistent. Which is why, you remember with President Bush... Yeah, 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 but now, literally, well, less than one minute. You know, with Bush, the dirty guy, boy, uh, boy in the back room, was Karl Rove, I think, who didn't... So, if I were to meet, I never will, of course, John McCain, or even the glorious mother, I really hate it. I don't know what was your reaction, but how could she, you know, that slimy daughter who was doing this to the... <laughs> okay, but, I, but, but seriously, what I would have asked McCain is not, are you serious, blah, blah, but let's, no bullshitting, tell me, who will be your Karl Rove, or who already is your Karl Rove? That's where things will be decided. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to sociologist, philosopher, and cultural critic, Dr. Slavo Zizek, speaking at Powell's City of Books in Portland, Oregon, on a speaking tour for his latest book, Violence. In a moment, we'll return to the question and answer session from the program. Slavo Zizek's many books include In Defense of Lost Causes, Iraq, The Borrowed Kettle, Enjoy Your Symptom, Jacques Lacan in Hollywood and Out, The Parallax View, and The Sublime Object of Ideology. His work also includes the critically acclaimed documentary A Pervert's Guide to Cinema, and he is subject of two documentary films, Zizek, The Reality to the Virtual, and more recently, Zizek. 
And now we return to the question and answer session with Slavoj Žižek. The author spoke at Powell City of Books in Portland, Oregon on September 9th, 2008. You know, you know what, why it's nice to talk too long? Because then with all hypocrisy I can say now, I'm so sorry we don't have more time for debate and so on. All right? I would like to stay all the night. <laughs> okay, so please, nonetheless, now we pretend for ten minutes that we are in democracy. No, okay, let's do it. Okay. I warn you, if you, some of you are philosophers, I like dialogue, but I like late Plato's dialogues. You know how they look. Late Plato. One guy talks all the time, the other guy every ten minutes just says something like, by Zeus, yes, so it is Socrates. So, let's have a dialogue, please. please. So we have time for uh, two questions. Okay. Let me be extremely generous. Three, three. No, sorry, let's see. I will tell you when I'm collapsing. Let's see, please. The first question referred back to the author's story about the man who was afraid he would be eaten by a chicken, and how that represented a fundamental truth about contemporary ideology. How do we get rid of this chicken? This audience member asked. Do you have suggestions for strategies for confronting ideology today? Ah, uh, okay. What I am tempted to say, maybe it will sound problematic to you, is maybe we just need a different chicken. Like, why get rid of the chicken? At a certain level in our society, you need a chicken. By chicken, I mean this, how should I call it, fundamental hypocrisy of language, which maybe, this may sound almost conservative, is part, you know what I mean by this, like, I all the time emphasize this, this elementary alienation of language, like, let's say we meet, we are half French, we are not yet, we met today full French, okay. We meet on the street, I tell you, nice to see you, how are you? We both know that I probably don't mean it seriously. You even especially know that I don't mean seriously, how are you? If I were to mean it seriously, you would have been totally justified to tell me F three points off, like, who are you? It's none of your business. But you see my point. It is, uh, it is how to put it, it's in a way a hypocrisy. But it's, I cannot put it otherwise, it's a sincere hypocrisy. And this works. I'll give you an example which, if you are a leftist, may surprise you. Okay, it's not actual figure today, but all and all, I am fascinated how Lenin, in his last years, his big motive against Stalin, and it looks crazy for a tough guy like Lenin, was politeness. You remember what Lenin, Lenin's main argument to why we have to get rid of Stalin is he doesn't behave in a polite way towards his colleague, his uh, brutal guy. So, you know, politeness form... Wasn't it your writer, I think, Kurt Vonnegut, who says this very nicely? He said, appearances are all we have, so we should be very careful with the appearances. My message here is that cynicism doesn't work. Every cynic has, you know... I, uh, Cynics are very tragic. Cynical position is appearances are only appearances. You can manipulate them, but they always, pay, they always pay the price. So again, you know, what I would find more sympathetic is something opposite at this level. Getting rid of the chicken would be too much of actor studio on Marlon Brando for me, which I don't like. You know, this idea, uh, let's drop the false forums, fully express yourself, and so on. No, I like something that I learn 
a friend told me, an old guy who was friend of Jacques Lacan himself. He told me that there was something incredible about Lacan as a person. When you saw him in public, he was playing a certain role, acting in a very artificial way and so on. He was playing a role. Then, of course, the enigma was this, like the 19th strike of Kim Jong-il. What kind of a warm human person is there behind this mask? And the shock was when you met Lacan in private, having dinner with him, going somewhere, was that there was nothing behind. He was exactly the same. <laughs> this would be my type of a person. <laughs> the next audience member said that the author had wonderfully denounced the notion of universal love and then that he had gone on to say that when you choose one person and love them above everyone else, that you create a desirable violence of imbalance, and that this was how love is evil. Would you elaborate on that? No, no. First, with this universal love, I mean, I may be changing my position. Terry Eagleton, with whom otherwise he is way too liberal for me, I don't agree. <laughs> but he made a nice proposal when he, and it's a beautiful idea, to translate the Christian agape, not as some desexualized spiritual sheet, but as political love. Agape is for him the love which links together the Christian agape, as opposed to eros, which binds together the emancipatory community. This is how I read Christianity. Holy Spirit means the party. <laughs> okay, but uh, what you said, what I mean is, uh, what I mean is simply that isn't love no, I mean it in a very naive way. What is passionate love? Isn't it a moment of terrifying imbalance? Something like, imagine you have your nice daily life, maybe you have some, some, how do you put it in vulgar terms, sex body, occasional sex, but nothing very disturbing. It goes on, you have drinks with happy love. Then you fall in love. It's a catastrophe. I mean, everything is totally destabilized. You think about that, and so on, and so on. In this sense, I claim, but I don't have time to go into it now, that no wonder that Christianity is, from a standpoint of traditional pagan spirituality, the religion of evil. Because the message of Christ is radical imbalance. Christianity is not this religion of re-establishing the balance. It's the religion of a crazy cut imbalance. Christianity totally breaks with this idea, which is why the, this idea came to me. Did you see, it's a bad film, but interesting underlying ideology. Did you see, what was it, the Phantom Menace? The first, the fourth, but the first in the series of Star Wars. You remember how uh, there, there is a whole series of signs which make uh, uh, Anakin, later Darth Vader, a Christological figure. The Redeemer, even when you see his mother, there are some hints that it was an immaculate conception. Then you have those uh, chariot or whatever with small spaceship race, which is an obvious reference to Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ. So uh, I think that from George Lucas, uh, basically, whatever you call it, uh, Gnostic, pseudo-Buddhist standpoint, pseudo... Uh, he is right. From that standpoint, uh, Darth Vader is a Christian figure, and Christianity is evil, this sense, which is why my dream would have been to remake Star Wars, but from a kind of a hard Jacobinic Marxist popular dictatorship standpoint, <laughs> so that uh, uh, it's the 
emperor, the seed, the emperor and Dark Vader, who are good centralizing progressive rulers, and all these Jedi creeds are some kind of, you know, reactionary small feudal resistance to progress and so on. I would love to do it the, the other way around. But uh, uh, it's a good question you ask because I think here we, atheist materialists, can learn from really intelligent theologists, really radical, like, for example, Kierkegaard who makes it very clear, who totally, in his maybe greatest work, which strangely is not even written in pseudonym, but by you know, the works of love, he explicitly, he so radically desentimentalizes Christian love. He said a true sign of Christian love is that you are ready to kill your neighbor out of love and all that stuff and so on and so on. It's a very, love for me is not sentimental love. love True, true love is cold love. True love is cold without mercy. But okay, that's another topic. So. <laughs> uh, 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 you, you decide. I want the, to uh, the next audience member observed that perhaps politeness is a kind of trivial word for civilization. Perhaps if we switch the chicken story so that the man is the chicken rather than the grain, you would understand civilization in a different way. In all of the author's examples, paradoxes aren't really paradoxes, and they seem central for civilization to exist. All of the paradoxes seem to be ones of content as actually separable entities, and they're winking and thus disarming. But the answer to paranoia, could it possibly be true paradox, something that seems contradictory to things that seem absolutely contradictory? but nevertheless are two parts of the whole. If I got it correctly, I tend to agree, but the, maybe I would just like to add another point, which seems to me crucial. I'm, I didn't, I don't have time, I didn't want to uh, go into that direction today, but I'm well aware also of the fundamental ambiguity of politeness. I think that Adorno in his Minima, Minima Moralia has a, a wonderful, like one paragraph on politeness, how it can be kindness, but it can also be a moment of, co of coldness, of distance, of brutality. I mean, we all know that, like, when somebody approaches you in deep crisis, the, the best, most efficient way to cruelly dismiss him is to be superficially polite, and so on and so on. So uh, I am well aware how much more mixed the situation is. I'm well aware that at, at the same time that obscenities are in the service of those in power as the supplement of power and so on, all the military dirty rituals, dirty jokes and so on, at the same time they can also play an incredibly important uh, progressive good role. Which is why, to shock my friends, when they ask me about racism, my usual answer is, I love racism. I cannot imagine my life without, my life without racist jokes. But I tell them I'm an egalitarian, consequent racist, which means racism against everybody. Which means what? No, no, I'm very personal here. Look, in old Yugoslavia, we had racist jokes like crazy. All about each nation was identified with a certain cliché. You know, we Slovenes were misers, Montenegro were lazy, and so on and so on. But these jokes didn't function as racist in the sense of humiliating others. On the contrary, we were mostly telling these jokes about ourselves to others. Like, I met my Montenegro friend, I told him the last jokes about Slovenes, he told, and this, far from functioning in a racist way, 
was rather, how should I call it, an exchange of obscenities, whose function was to guarantee, to put it in very naive term, authentic communication. The message was, now we are really close, it's not just this disgusting, politically correct, like, for example, if I were to visit you here, isn't it clear that as long as I would stay at this disgusting level of, oh, what interesting culture do you have here, show me your museums, your paintings, blah, this is, this is patronizing, but you tell me a dirty joke, we communicate, we are there. It has to be, it, and let me tell you another, I think it's one of my less known books, I can tell it to you, stories which makes this point at its pure level. I was in the army when I became very friendly with an Albanian soldier. And, but then we wanted to break the ice, to signal to each other that we really are friends. So one morning he approached me and told me, I'll screw F, okay, we're not, your mother. Uh, I knew what this meant. He was offering me true friendship. <laughs> I knew what he expected of me. To return in a kind, believe me, I didn't have a problem. I immediately answered him, Go on after I finish with your sister. <laughs> we, and then this was it. By this, I mean that from that on we were friends. And then we stopped talking dirty like this. The only remainder of this was that every morning till the end of the military service, when we met each other, instead of the usual, hello, good morning, whatever, we just said the words, mother, sister. But we even didn't laugh. It was totally without humor. It was just a kind of a token, now we are friends. <laughs> now, I will be a good boy and tell you, I'm well aware of the price we paid, ideological price. First, obviously, this is a sexist pact. The ritual was, of course, only symbolic, we didn't really do, but the idea was to humorously enact, you know, boys exchanging girls, men exchanging women. I'm aware of this. So the least I can say is, I would like to see two of you meeting, you know, screw my husband, nice after I finish with your brother or something like this. It would at least establish the balance. No, okay. Second thing is the question of authority. I mean, this was possible because we were both ordinary soldiers. I mean, like, you don't go to an officer and tell him, screw your mother, no, better not, no. Or on the, which is why I hate today's, today's post-authoritarian capitalism where bosses, they are called today, not even, they don't like to be called bosses, they are managers, coordinators, and so on, like to treat you as equals, you know, they tell you dirty jokes and so on. Why I find this so horrible? Because we all know that they still keep all the power. But by, at the same time, behaving friendly towards you, they, they block much more efficiently all criticism. You cannot even protest. They, they can be hurt. My God, we are friends. How can you talk like that? And so on and so on. So, okay, uh, back to you. I agree with your point here. I vaguely know, but I don't want to go too far today. It was a very nice point that I totally agree with you, that what I was describing is just a kind of a, a complementary functioning of two levels, which is not really a contradiction at all. And I like your point, which is that to break out of this, it's not so much uh, that we have to, I don't know, drop the appearance and be just consistent. It's an even more radical true contradiction. Maybe this is how I would interpret what I described to you as how Lacan acts. 
there, are, there is no duality there. He's just, in private life, the same totally effective, disgusting, artificial monster as in public life. That's absolute, that's pure contradiction in contrast to all, in, in contrast to all these games you play. At, uh, how should I put it? Uh, this is why, I wonder if you agree with me, maybe it's my Eurocentric, spontaneous racism, but this is the paradox I find spontaneously in guys, this new age, who went through some kind of shitty meditation, whatever, and then they claim, be calm now, you see, I'm no longer caught in this artificial mad world of, I, I'm at peace at myself, and but they talk like automaton, like doll, you know, like at the very point when they pre pretend to be purely themselves, no longer alienated and so on, they appear puppets to me. <laughs> so you need, absolute, you need absolute contradiction. Yes, absolute contradiction is for me another name of subjectivity, but okay. No, one more, one more, because, no, because I noticed your tendency of uh, uh, privileging the right. <laughs> there was a centrist question and a leftist question. Let's do this and then I answer. The next question referred back to the author's discussion of the clash of civilizations and so-called fundamentalism. Obviously, this audience member observed, a lot of what passes for fundamentalism in our discourse about various sorts of conflicts today doesn't seem to actually be fundamentalism. This member of the audience asked what the author thought true and authentic fundamentalism looks like and what role it plays. This is, this is such a nice question that I suspect almost that you read some of my work and know what will be the answer, which is that I'm in total sympathy with through authentic fundamentalism. Let's take Amish in the United States. I have no illusions about them. I mean, they have the highest family rape percentage. But nonetheless, I met some of them. What, you know what's the key feature? Fake fundamentalists are caught in envy. For them, what liberals are doing them orgies and so on. So the perfect figure of fake fundamentalism for me is my, my favorite disgusting creature. I w will not call him human. You remember that old preacher Jimmy Swaggart, who was first attacking Jim Baker, then when he was caught visiting a prostitute, you know what his justification, this totally disgusting of, I'm fighting evil so I... We've got to know evil to fight it more, more efficiently. But the point is this absolute fascination, you know. What goes on then? What are Jews, liberals, blacks? What are they doing? What I found so nice with Amish, with all their imperfections, I'm not idealizing them, is that they were genuinely amused and friendly without without evil towards the Englishmen. They thought, okay, they didn't find their way, they are probably less happy than us, but let them leave no, absolutely no envy. And although I am, as some of you may know, extremely very critical of Dalai Lama and of all this Western Buddhism stuff, the Tibetans that I made, nonetheless met, nonetheless made a good impression on me because I encountered the same Phenomenal. They don't envy us. Their vision is not, oh, I pretend to be this sacred monk, but secretly I'm bothered. What, what are you doing? You know, no, it's just this benevolent indifference. And from one of them, I got a wonderfully correct remark where he told me that in your fascination with our Buddhism, you do something which is totally alien to our culture. You perceive us as being far away. We are for you kind of, you know, that 
lost secret up there, secret place, which you have to travel, suffering. And it, he told me this idea of a dangerous voyage to truth is foreign to them. The basic Buddhist insight is that you don't have to travel. It's all here. You don't have to move. We are imposing on it a totally different narrative. So in this sense, to be concrete, my God, I mean, true fundamentalists like Amish, you know that they were very much against Vietnam War, they're usually very peaceful, very critical, they're almost dissidents and so on. I'm in no way at all afraid of them. So it's very important to show as what the, you called her, I think she deserves the title, the lady before, when she told me about this simple, not true contradiction. That's for me the problem with fake fundamentalism. Take our beloved guys like Jimmy Swogger, Jim Baker and other younger the problem is not that they are fundamentalists. The problem is that the way they deliver, articulate their message undermines the message. The message is, you know, liberal pleasures, hedonism, ego trip, no, there is something more. But the way they appear and act is one big ego trip. They are effectively changing religion into one more narcissistic, hedonist ego trip. They are the greatest hedonists. So another lesson from this, when you hear about family values or all this motive, I think the left should not determine or allow the enemy, the opponent, to determine the field, the terms of the debate. The reaction of family values should not be, yeah, okay, family is good, but what about gay marriages and so on? Of course I'm for gay marriages, but the, the reply of the left should be, who are you to talk about uh, family values? Reganomics, your economic policy, is more uh, ruined more family, family and community life th th than all the leftist attacks on morality, what they call together, and so on and so on. Like, don't allow the enemy to determine the field of struggle. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to sociologist, philosopher, and cultural critic, Dr. Slavo Zizek, speaking at Powell City of Books in Portland, Oregon, on a speaking tour for his latest book, Violence. This program was produced by PDX Justice Media Productions. For more information about this and our many other video and audio programs, please visit our website at www.pdxjustice.org. You'll find streaming video and audio programs featuring such speakers as Jonathan Kozol, Susan Faludi, Amira Haas, Noam Chomsky, Jonathan Cook, and many others. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for supporting listener-sponsored radio, public access cable television, net neutrality, independent bookstores, and all forms of grassroots, democratic, community media.